Okay, good evening everyone. Welcome to our evening Dhamma session, our weekly Sutta session, I should say. So today we're looking at the Jetokila Sutta, Majimanikaya 16, for those of you interested. Jetokila means wilderness of the mind, or wilderness in the mind, jungle of the mind, maybe better. Kila, kila, kila is something that's hard to pass through. If you've ever been through the jungle, if you've never been through the jungle, let me tell you. At its worst, the jungle is not an easy thing to pass through. Remember once when I got lost in the jungle and this poacher actually, some poacher up in the mountain who was firing his gun off, I heard the gun go off and I ran towards him until I remembered that that's probably a bad idea. Run towards someone with a gun, especially when you're wearing robes that make you look, well, not exactly like a human being. I think I scared him more than he scared me, though, when I finally caught up to him. Anyway, he pointed out the way back to the village, and it was down through this ravine in the middle. It was midnight. And uh, so I'm walking blind through the this ravine, and boy, <laughs> by the time I got back to the village, I was completely scratched and had thorns these little thorns that get under your skin and take months. I was finding them a few weeks later anyway. I was finding thorns in my sh feet and legs and hands and arms weeks later. That's where the jungle is. So when you apply this to the mind, you're talking about something that's that keeps you from progressing, keeps you lost. Keeps you caught, keeps you entangled, heading about in the wrong direction, unable to find your way out. Yeah, jungle here is not just something that obstructs your path, but something that gets you all turned around. You know, going out, the thing about getting lost is going away from your point of origin is easy turning around. When you turn around, suddenly everything looks quite different. Right? You remember everything on your way out. Yes, I remember this hill and this hill. And I did. But on the way back, it all looked different. A jungle gets you lost. But this sutta is about two different sets of things. It's the Jetokila and the other one is Jetosovinibanda which is just the shackles of the mind things that keep you bound so this sutta is about well it's actually there's three sets he doesn't mention this in the beginning in the beginning he sets out to talk about these two sets of things he says if someone doesn't um, abandon the five wildernesses of the mind and break free from the five shackles of the mind 
they cannot be expected that they should grow in this Dhamma Vinaya, that they should progress Netang Thanang Vijati. That sort of thing is not possible. But then at the end of the sutta, he talks about five more things that are actually positive. He says, when one abandons these ten, well, five things, five positive qualities come about, and that's how one succeeds. So altogether, there are 15 things. And so we'll go through those tonight. It's a useful endeavor, I think. The thing uh, about you, you, you pr probably getting a sort of a seeing a pattern here that a lot of these suttas can be boiled down to lists of things that are good, lists of things that are bad. And a question that often comes up is, okay, now I know these things, how do I get rid of them? Because what's conspicuously absent from most of these talks is any uh, means or any detailed means by which one uh, removes these, these uh, bad things and cultivates the good things, right? And I think that's an important point to consider because uh, if it was possible to just turn off the bad things and turn on the good things or find some mechanism by which we could change, uh, it would undermine a lot of the Buddha's teaching about non-self, where the Buddha says, uh, sankari evang me sankari sankara hotu you, you can't get it in regards to sankaras. Evang me sankara hotu evang me sankara ma ahesu. May my mental formations be thus, may my mental formations not be thus. You can't have it that way. You can't just wish things to be. And so uh, the Buddha does talk a lot about training. But the training is often in very simple things like mindfulness. It's not training directly to remove this or to remove that or to cultivate this or to cultivate that. What this is designed for, you know, going through these sets of dhammas, is to point out, in this case, the, 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 the dangers. And also at the end, point out the good things. When you're being mindful, it's very easy to miss the most important um, qualities or dhammas. You know, the ones that you really should be mindful are often the ones that you're the least mindful of, and that's what makes them important. They're the strongest ones you cling to. If you're clinging to something and it's become habitual, it's very hard to become mindful of that. And so pointing it out to the meditators is, is crucial in terms of directing their attention. If I point out to you this dhamma, that dhamma, this is bad, that's bad. Immediately you start to see that in yourself and you say, oh, I've got that. Yeah, I've seen that. And then you sit down to meditate and you say, oh, this is what he was talking about. You see, so the real purpose here is not to provide any, and it doesn't, you know, it's not to provide any means by which to turn these things on or off. It's to point out to you, you know, some of the things that are easily missed and, 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 missed um, with greater consequences, right? If you're not mindful of certain things, it's less dire than if you're not mindful of 
certain other things often mentioned in suttas like this. Right? If you're not mindful of the really bad things, if you're not clear and not able to see through them and see the dangers in them, very difficult to progress, very difficult to find peace of mind. You know? I talk simply about being able to sit peacefully, being able to be at peace with ourselves. Our minds are agitated, disturbed by wanting and liking and disliking and so on, and sorts of things brought up in the sutta or in suttas like this. So you know, a big part of it is um, to simply give us direction. It's like to provide us uh, a sense that we're headed in the right direction and to point out to us the right path and the wrong path and to help us direct our efforts. So let's go through what these are. The uh, wilderness of the mind is mainly made up of doubt. So people have doubt in the Buddha, he says. Doubt in the teacher, Satha. The Satha is, means the, the great headmaster who is the Buddha. The Buddha described himself, referred to himself often as Satha, the teacher. Sattari kankati vichikichati nadhimuchati na sampasidati. You don't have faith in the Buddha, it's, uh, well, it's hard to put out effort, right? If you think about the Buddha and it kind of turns you off, or if your idea of the Buddha is some fat guy who laughs a lot, uh, it can be hard to really take Buddhism seriously. It's a real danger that we have these days. People, when they hear about the Buddha, they think, jolly fat guy. And that's not actually the Buddha. I, I think much more common, or, or that's common, but another important point about the Buddha is um, just not knowing anything about it. You know, a lot of people practice meditation not knowing much about the Buddha. And obviously you don't need to know anything about the Buddha to practice mindfulness, but it sure helps if you really learn the Buddha's teaching and get a sense of just how wonderful he was, you know. He never said anything that was mean or, or disparaging to anyone. He was full of compassion and wisdom. You know, it's a support for your practice. It's why, why people are so keen to make these Buddha images images of the Buddha even though the Buddha wasn't having any of it and, and the monks for a long time weren't having any of it either not making images but it became people had such strong faith in the Buddha and they started making these images and it's understandable because people had great faith and still do to this day great faith in the Buddha but it, it's not like faith in the sense that you believe something without um, without any evidence it's that you see and you learn about someone and it just, they strike you as so great and wonderful. So the Buddha says, you know, this kind of thing is is important in a sense. I mean, really what he's saying is if you doubt him, it's a part of the problem. But certainly having confidence in the Buddha is a great support. And of course that comes 
and it comes best by meeting the Buddha. This was, of course, taught in a time when you could actually go and see the Buddha. So if someone went and saw the Buddha and said, ah, I don't, he's bald, right? He's living in the forest, he's torturing himself. And if you have doubt like that, oh, very difficult. You'll never get anywhere in, in the Buddha's teaching. Most people, when they hear about Buddhism, they... Well, anyway, talking about the Buddha is... The, the biggest thing is, if you think of the Buddha as a jolly fat guy, it's very hard to get confidence in, in that. Maybe not. I mean, people like that about this fat guy, is that he's jolly and full. <laughs> Obviously, eats and gets enough food. And, and you know he seems very compassionate and very kind and very happy. And so people think, well, you know, Buddhism is about happiness. It's not entirely bad, but it's nothing like actually learning about the real Buddha and gaining some kind of confidence. And wow, he was a true meditation master. You know, really had it all down, to say the least. You know, to put it kind of lightly. The second is the Dhamma. So, of course, this is maybe more to the point. If you doubt the, the Buddha's teaching, uh, if you doubt the meditation practice, a lot of people doubt mindfulness practice, especially of the sort where you use a mantra, and I'm not exactly sure why that is. It's uh, perhaps because there are a lot of other people who tell you not to use it, but I think it's just not how we think of meditation, you know. When you hear about meditation, when you look at someone, a picture of someone meditating, you see them just sitting there and you think, oh, okay. And we get this sense of meditation as being something passive, where you just sit there and do nothing. Not realizing that closing your eyes isn't to turn off your mind, it's to turn on your mind and train your mind, you know. Meditation is hard work, and it should be, no matter what kind of meditation you practice. And people get, get great doubt about this type of meditation where you repeat to yourself, for example, pain, pain. It's a shame because it's a very useful technique. It's quite practical and, and clearly realizable benefits. Um, but doubt will, will prevent them from arising or will slow them down. Fortunately, uh, even if you do doubt the Dhamma, but you still practice it anyway, you know, eventually you can slowly wean yourself off the doubt. With the Buddhist teaching, it's easier because it happens to be realizable. It's the kind of thing that you can, it's opanayika, it's sanditika, you can see it for yourself. You know, if you have a teaching that says, believe in God and you'll go to heaven, well, it's a little harder to, to get some faith and reassurance. Right? People, theists have, a, have the worst They've got the worst fate, worst luck, because they have to believe something that has no evidence. Or not very good evidence. But if you want to believe that anger is bad for you, well, it's much easier to get evidence than that. You don't have to believe it, just study the anger for a bit. You know, oh yeah. Yeah, anger is not pleasant, for example. The third is doubt about the Sangha. So this goes together. I mean, this is a fairly um, sort of obvious, it's an obvious progression talking about the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And the Buddha uses, put these, puts these together, of course, as the triple gem. Doubt in the Sangha, um, 
here refers specifically to having doubt that anyone can, when practicing the Buddha's teaching, become enlightened. You look at the followers of the Buddha and you say, I don't think these guys are enlightened at all. I don't see anything special about Sariputta or Moggallana or these monks walking around like zombies, not laughing and singing and playing music and eating good food. What kind of happiness is that? Uh, the, the worst doubt, I think, is the doubt that the Buddhist teaching has efficacy, that it's actually possible to become enlightened, that anyone has become enlightened. I mean, this one, I, I think it's less of an issue. Uh, it certainly can be an issue. Um, and, it, and it can be, an, it's a bigger issue now, I suppose. Nowadays, when we don't have the Buddha as an example, instead we have a lot of different Buddhist teachers, some of whom may be partially enlightened, some may even be fully enlightened, some may not be enlightened at all. And having to sort of sift through, separate the wheat from the chaff, and doubting what's the wheat and what's the chaff and hearing people even say I'm an arahant and that kind of thing, you know yikes, what do you do with that when someone says they're an arahant easy to doubt but this isn't so much about doubting a specific person as it is about doubting the concept of the sangha that someone who practices according to the Buddhist teaching is practicing rightly and someone who practices according to the Buddha's teaching becomes enlightened, becomes pure in the mind. Basically that it has results. The fourth is the training. Uh, again, basically talking about the same thing. I mean, maybe this is, I should have saved for this part. So doubt in the training. Uh, doubt about the people training. You'd have doubt about the training itself. So the Dhamma, I guess, if you want to separate these out, the Dhamma, when we talked about the Dhamma, it means the concepts, the theory, X is Y, right? All Sankharas are impermanent, all Sankharas are suffering, all, all Dhammas are non-self, these kind of things. That's the Dhamma. The training is the four Satipatthana, the practice in them, eh, is mindfulness a good thing? Is practice of mindfulness a good thing? If you have doubt in that, that's doubt about the training. So four types of doubt, these are wildernesses, these get you totally lost. Doubt, doubt is, my teacher talked a lot about doubt, not talked a lot about it, but he would often warn people about doubt. Whenever a meditator had doubt, he'd say, oh, that's, he would take special care. If someone came to him and he asked about the hindrances and they said they had no doubt, he would say, oh, well, good. At least you have no doubt, because doubt is dangerous. Doubt means getting lost. Long You take the long way. And the fifth one is getting angry. Sabrahmachari su kupito hoti anattamano ahatajito. Kila jato. Here we have this word kila again. Huh. So kila actually means hardness. No, barrenness of mind. 
Yeah, so a jungle might have been not exactly correct, but it's it's used to mean wasteland. Hardness of the mind. So with this one, it's anger. When you get, but it's specifically directed towards one's fellows. I mean, this is a teaching that's much more commonly useful for monks. It does rear its head among lay communities as well, but uh, it's just uh, maybe to give a warning. It's easy uh, in, uh, in uh, our online community, maybe sometimes people get angry at each other. But it certainly happens in monasteries. I don't know if I, I've told this story a few times about how when I went, I became a monk and I went away for a year and I came back and uh, I wasn't at this monastery for two weeks and sitting in the kitchen in the morning and one of the monks suddenly gets up and starts pounding on one of the other monks gives him a bloody nose and it's just one of those things you'd never thought you'd see in a Buddhist monastery but it happens it happens more often than you think because well first and most importantly is because people of all sorts come to monasteries so and even the ones with good intentions not to mention the ones with bad intentions you you can have good intentions and still let your emotions overwhelm you. I don't know. I can't imagine ever doing that myself. But you know, people of all kinds. Um. So yeah, this is a this is a fifth. This is a hardness of, or a wasteland of the mind. I guess something that gets you stuck, gets in your the way of your practice. I mean, it destroys community, destroy, destroys the communal harmony. The Buddha said, Sukho sugasa sukhasa samaki samakanang tapo sukho. Happiness is. Sukho sugasa dhamma sukha sanghasa samaki. Happiness is the sangha when it dwells in harmony. And happiness, the you know, the exertion of those in harmony is is happiness. Meaning, there's a great power that comes from working together. You know, even here in our small house, I mean, this isn't ideal conditions. It's actually quite challenging to do a meditation course in such an enclosed space. But you see how it works when you get together, when you see other people doing it, when you're inspired by a, a house full of meditators. You encourages you in your practice and anger tempers flaring this destroys that it splits monasteries into pieces I've seen monasteries where there were three groups of monks large monasteries and they had assembled into three cliques and they fought they manipulated and they fought for power in the monastery it's quite impressively awful You know, it's happened even in the Buddha's time. So a warning to us in our Buddhist communities. Anger is one thing. You know, this thing we have on the wall here. Anger is one thing. Everyone gets angry. But when you get angry back, that's when it starts. That's when the fight begins. So we let each other get angry. If someone starts beating you up, you accept that, well, that's... Uh, 
that's there they have to deal with that it's not some not any of my business that's a very a very impressive stance to take and I've never been beaten up before so I don't know how I would fare but it's a good example to follow So those are the five wildernesses of the mind, or not wildernesses, I get, uh, I guess, uh, wastelands, barrenness, this totally awful place. The next five are the five shackles of the mind, and it's a bit different to be shackled, to be stuck, to be lost. This is one thing, doubt gets you lost. Living in a broken sangha, this gets you lost. You have no direction. Who do I follow? Who do I trust? Shakes up your practice. But the shackles, they just keep you from practicing. So this, maybe you can guess what this has to do with, really all has to do with, with greed. So the first set had to do with delusion, like doubt is a kind of a delusion, moha and dosa, which is anger. But this set has to do with loba, greed. Sort of the five things that keep us tied, keep us shackled. Here a bhikkhu is not free from lust, desire, affection, thirst, fever and craving for sensual pleasures, sensuality, kama. We've talked about this before. Kama is the senses, seeing, want to see good things, hear good things, smell, taste, feel, think, well, feel sensuality, just general sensuality. One is tied to sensual pleasures. And it's not one specific thing, it's just the, the state of being pleased, right? And this is how we live our lives, we jump from one to the other. We, you can't eat food and be pleased by it constantly. So we go from food to music to flowers to uh, soft beds, couches, sex. We go back and forth. None of these things can keep you pleased for long, so we have to jump back and forth. Entertainment, right? Entertainment's a little bit different. We'll save that maybe for one of the other ones. But sensuality, the five senses, five physical senses. Yes, getting caught up with those, obviously. I mean, people often demand to know what's wrong with these things. And, well, there is quite a bit wrong with them in the sense that they lead to addiction and, and, and eventual disappointment. But there's something more in that they just get you uh, distracted, right? Or bound really not even just distracted but totally inert no good comes from your life in the sense of personal development as long as you're tied to sensuality you don't become better as a person you don't develop spiritually you don't free yourself from all the bad stuff in your mind and so you Leave yourself open to suffering, even not ta not yet getting into the suffering that comes from addiction itself. But being addicted to sensuality is a total loss of life. 
loss of the potential that we have as human beings. It's a great, uh, great loss to be caught up, to be shackled. It's like being in prison, wasting your life away in prison. So sensuality, the second one, oh, and because of that, because of being shackled, the mind doesn't incline to ardor, devotion, perseverance, and striving. That's the first shackle. The second is lust, desire, affection, thirst, fever, and craving for the body. It's one's own body. Yes, one's own body. This is perhaps the desire for the body to look good, the obsession with how, how beautiful or handsome our body looks, looking in the mirror all the time, worrying about makeup. and uh, I think women have it harder in this one. Men aren't as, I think, and this is of course cultural, but I think generally, just talking to women, it's amazing you know, how, bra how brainwashed women often are into being caught up. And brainwashed, I mean, it's, not, it's a harsh term, but how it's really, I mean, from, from a young age, women are taught that they have to look a certain way. Much more than men, I think, culturally speaking. Maybe different in certain societies, but I think the West has done well, the West. Let's, let's let's see, modern society in general has done a good job in that sense. You know, people cultures with strong attachment to culture. This is one of the negative sides of a strong attachment to cultures. Our cultures have become quite perverted in this sense. Women have to look a certain way. I don't even know if that's true, to tell you the truth. As I think about it, the West is pretty awful. <laughs> I think about it, Sri Lanka's a pretty good place. In Sri Lanka, I don't find people all that caught up in their looks. I don't know. I'm getting lost. Let's not talk, talk in this way. Generally speaking, cultures and societies teach women and, and men that we have to look in a certain way. We can't be overweight or pimple-faced or short, tall, you have to wear certain clothes and so on, craving for the body, very dangerous. You get caught up in that, you get attached to the body, well, very difficult to free yourself as well. Number three, for form and craving for form. And this is different from the body, Bhikkhu Bodhi says, because form is relating to outer forms. So attachment to other people's bodies is probably a good one. Uh, instead of just seeing, this is attachment to, to, to things, right? Attached to other physical objects. You attach to your car. Attached to your wife or your husband, your girlfriend, boyfriend, your child, your son, your daughter, your father, your mother. Attached to gold and jewels, attached to your iPhone, iPad. Attached to your clothes, your wristwatch, your rings, your jewelry. The attachment to things, very dangerous. Worrying about them. Just finding pleasure in them, of course. I mean, with all these things, the the pleasure is the big problem. When you get caught up in the pleasure, 
We're not going anywhere. I mean, a big thing about pleasure, again, avoiding this whole the, the elephant in the room of addiction, but um, the big thing about pleasure is it makes you comfortable, right? When you're pleased, you don't have any sense that something's wrong. That sounds kind of awful, I suppose, but we kind of want to have a sense of something wrong. But we, the point is we want to have a sense of what actually is wrong. And pleasure blinds you to what is actually wrong. The potential for suffering, the, our inability to cope with suffering. How do you know whether you're able to cope with suffering if you're always ple pleased, right? So meditation is challenging in this way. When you practice meditation, it's difficult. It's unpleasant often. And that's somehow purposeful because it's a, a test to see how we react and it's to show us how we react. And you'll see so clearly how we react and how we cause ourselves suffering. It's not our experiences that hurt us, it's our reactions to them. So forms. The fourth one is a bit specific here, a bhikkhu, this could be a lay person as well, eats as much as he likes or she likes until their belly is full and indulges in the pleasures of sleeping, lolling and drowsing. Someone once asked, uh, someone once asked me how is it that monks who will eat only one day can get, can get so fat? You might be surprised how many fat monks there are. And the answer, of course, is that they're not eating only one meal a day. They're eating probably several meals a day, unfortunately. I think in the beginning it looks like the Buddha didn't have any rules but only eat in, eating in the morning. I think it was sort of a given, right? Because a lot of people in that time, religious people, would starve themselves. So there was no, there was no sense in the beginning that anyone who went forth under the Buddha would eat a lot. Especially probably because... When the Buddha was still unknown, the monks would go on alms round and not get very much to eat. Like if I went on alms round here in Canada, I might might not get anything to eat. But they would get maybe a few beans, and so there was no sense of eating too much. But once the Buddha's name was spread, and so many people became uh, caught up in the, the great his greatness. Oh, there was a lot of food around. And then the Buddha said, yeah, you're only allowed to eat in the morning. No eating outside of the morning hours. And uh, even that, you know, even just eating in the morning, it's still easy. It's still possible to get caught up in eating and get caught up in eating a lot and then falling asleep. Another woman once said to me, you know, the reason why a lot of monks are unhealthy is because after they, after they eat, they immediately go and sit in meditation. And because they sit in meditation, they're, they're not, um, their bodies aren't active. And I said, I, th I think I said, or maybe I just thought to myself, you know, the real reason is probably because after they eat, they lie down to sleep, which is far worse, right? After you eat, you should get up and do walking meditation, of course. Walking meditation helps digest your food. The Buddha himself recommended it. Good idea. Walking is a great thing to do after you eat. Not lying down to sleep. So you get addicted like this, you're not going to get anywhere. But it is, a, unfortunately, a common problem with monks. They get 
into a routine of laziness. They eat and then they sleep. Don't do that. Oh, very hard to progress in the meditation that way. And number five, some people, bhikkhus, or maybe even lay people, they live the holy life, they practice meditation and, and goodness of all kinds in order to go to heaven, aspiring to some order of angels thus, by this virtue or observance or asceticism or holy life, I shall become a great god or a lesser god. Angel, maybe is a better word. And as a result, you know, this is a bad idea because it's complacency. It's complacency in samsara, it's complacency in existence. It sets the whole wrong tone of the mind. It sends you out, right? Becoming an angel is just another concept. Becoming a god, even. Meditation is supposed to bring you in and keep you present. If you're focused on what you're going to get out of this, what's going to happen after you die. Not such a common problem in modern times because everyone is skeptical about the potential for rebirth anyway. But nonetheless, any kind of future reward, even future rewards in this life, you think I'll practice meditation like this and it'll make me, free me from this problem or free me from that problem. It's really the wrong way to go about it because you're focused on the future focused on a conceptual state that doesn't actually exist, right? Any state of freedom is only a momentary state. No, meditation has to keep you here and now. If you want release, if you want freedom, you really have to be focused on the present, not on what you're going to get out of it, but how you're living, how you're practicing. In this moment is my mind pure. That's all you have to worry about. In this moment is my mind clear. That's where your attention should be focused. That should be your goal, not I will get this out of it, I will get that out of it, I will be like this. And then you open your eye and say, am I there yet? Right? Wondering if you've attained these positive states yet, and then you doubt, feel bad because you haven't. And then you start doubting, so we get back to the first part. These are the five shackles, all based on clinging. And he says, when you've severed these shackles and abandoned the, will, the, the wastelands of the mind, the bad stuff in the mind, whatever, then five good things come up, right? Or maybe having done that, you're free to develop five good things. So these five good things are the four idipada that I talk, I've talked about before. Some of you maybe remember. The first one is chanda. You start to have uh, sort of a sense of appreciation for your for the practice. You settle in and you become comfortable with it. When your mind is all tossed and turned, meditation doesn't seem very very appealing. Once you get settled and you settle all these negative aspects of the mind, meditation becomes quite appealing, and you really get keen on it. That's chanda. Second is virya. Once you have chanda, then you have effort. You're really able to put out effort because you have a single, your mind is, is single-pointed in the sense that you're not, should I do it, shouldn't I do it, right? You're not being pushed and pulled by the doubt or the greed. Oh, maybe I'll go and enjoy this or enjoy that. Once you give these things up, you're free to do what's right. And you're, you're intent upon it. 
and you put out great effort because you're keen on it. Virya. The second is jitta. Jitta, you start to, and you have to start. I mean, this is also active. Jitta means you you focus on it because of the effort. You're able to focus your attention and see things more clearly. Jitta. You keep what you do in mind. Keep focused on it. It takes energy, and then and then the focus comes. And the fourth is vimangsa. Vimangsa means you uh, begin to analyze your practice in the sense of adjusting it. Right? Vimangsa is this fourth important quality. It's not enough to just be pushing and focusing and, and keen on it. You have to be smart as well, analytical in the sense of mm, what's wrong with my practice? What could I improve about my practice? And being methodical in implementing the changes. So those are the four. The fifth one, I don't know what to do with it. The fifth one is called uh, Usolhi. I think it's the Thai word Utsaha. Usolhi means, let's look it up. So the fourth, and then he says, then the fifth one, Ewa Masayang Panchamo. Oh, wait, no. Where am I? Oh no, here we are. Usoli Banara Sangha Samanagato. Yeah, it's not going to translate that. Usolhi. Usolhi. Exertion. Yeah, Usaha is the one I'm familiar with. Usolhi. Usaha is just effort, really. What would it be referring to? Yeah. Because we've already got effort in there. Solha m maybe refers to the practical aspect of... of uh, repetition, perhaps. You know, keeping up with something. So it's one thing to... to practice and to practice well but the question is are you keeping up with it are you really dedicated maybe it's dedication you know when you when you're devoted and dedicated to it then all these good qualities come to fruition but anyway those first four are, are very important it's something the buddha talks about often and they're the roads to success keenness or or uh, interest in what you're doing effort Focus and discernment is for the four ways to succeed in really anything, but most especially in, in mental fortitude. So, there you go. That's the Jetokila Sutta. Uh, I recommend reading it in full if you're interested in these Dhammas. But that's the Dhamma for tonight. Thank you all for tuning in. Have a good night.